We're going to read from Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to go from verses 2 to verses 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech be always with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to, you should respond to each person. Well, welcome again to our sermon series on prayer and evangelism, a series that was started a lot due to you and your requests of me uh, throughout the last few months. But today um, is our fourth sermon in what will be a series of six. And if you've missed any of them so far, I encourage you to listen to them on the website because each one uh, sort of builds on the other. And so last week we looked at how to partner with God in prayer when faced with situations in which we felt helpless. You know, when, when our backs are against the wall and we're kind of at a total loss for what to do with no solution. And we talk about a five-step process and how to uh, pray when faced with helplessness. Today we're going to be looking at how to pray and partner with the Lord in creating opportunity to share our faith. So today's sermon is really cool because it's not a sermon just about prayer. It's not a sermon just about evangelism. It's one that kind of combines both into one. Now, this passage I know is very familiar to a lot of you. Uh, you've read it before. You've heard it preached before. Uh, there's been studies we've done on it and so on. Um, but my prayer for you today, as it has been this entire week, is that you will, through the power of the Spirit and the use of my life, understand this in a, in a more significant way and gain a, a greater appreciation for what Paul was trying to say to the Colossian church. And that by doing so, you share in his heartbeat and in the rhythm of his heart for the lost people. And that makes you desire to partner with the Lord in your own lives to a greater degree than you already have. So let me give you the context of Colossians. When Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, he had a unique relationship to them in that they were a church community that he had never met. Now the reason he had never met them was because he actually wasn't the one who planted the church there. That was give, the, the person who likely planted the church was a, name, a man by the name of Epaphras, who we see in chapter 1, verse 7, who lived in Colossae. Now, he was a co-worker of Paul, and so uh, he knew him, but he didn't know the church in Colossae. Now, Paul wrote the letter because Epaphras had come to him and let him know of different problems that the Colossians were facing. There was a lot of heresy uh, surrounding the nature and identity of Jesus, and there was cultural pressures to walk away from Jesus Christ and abandon the faith. Now, Paul wrote this letter then to a correct error, but also to encourage them in their faith and strengthen them in their resolve to follow Jesus. But there's a key observation in this text that, and in the situation in Colossae that gave me further insight into this passage and changed a lot of the significance and the deep richness of these verses and that is the fact that Paul, when he wrote this letter, was in prison. He was imprisoned when he wrote that letter. And as I preach this message today, you're going to see why this is so important and how it changes 
not changes, but adds richness to, to his instruction to us. But you'll pick up the fact that he was in prison, imprisoned in verse 3. He says, um, he goes, I, I want to preach the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. In verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, send you his greetings. And then in verse 18, he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So Paul is in the clank when he, uh, when he writes this. And so this is an important observation to set the tone for the rest of the passage. So let's dive in. This sermon is centered around, for me, two verbs. Two verbs. If you like to circle things in your Bible, you can circle these words. The word devote in verse 2, which begins the, 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 the paragraph. And also the second paragraph in verse 5, conduct. So devote and conduct. These are the verses in which, or the verbs in which we're going to build the whole sermon around. And verse, basically devotion is verses 2 to 4, and conduct is verses 5 and 6. So Paul's first instruction then to us, as it well as was as it well as was to the Colossians in terms of um, op- opening doors for opportunity, was to vote yourselves to prayer. You are to devote yourselves to prayer. Now that word devotion is the same understanding in Greek as it is in English. It's the idea of being persistent in something, or constantly attending to something, or adhering to a task on a continual basis. It carries the idea of being steadfast. That's why some of your translations may not have the word devote there, but might have the word starting off continue in prayer or continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, Paul wasn't expecting this was a 24 hours a day uh, thing. The concept of devotion and being steadfast is this idea of ongoing action. It's this idea where you're always conscious of the Lord as you walk throughout your day and you seek to communicate with him on a regular basis with the dealings that are going on. So it's basically the, it's a, it's the core essence of your being, the fabric of your being is one who's in constant communication with the Lord as you bring him praise and thanksgiving and, and bring your request to him. So if you're walking in the, in the, you know, uh, through the mall, you can talk to the Lord. If you're driving in your car, you're talking to the Lord. If you get up for, to make your breakfast, you're talking to the Lord. If, you, if you're laying down before sleep, you're talking to the Lord. Again, so it's not 24 hours a day expectation because you do have to sleep, you do have to work. You do have to eat. You have to take care of your family. God gives you those responsibilities. But you always have a God consciousness and you seek to communicate with Him daily, unregularly. Now this idea of devotion, of course, was an early marker of the church. We saw this in the leadership uh, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, where they were devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Paul, Sabanus, and Timothy in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 said that they were always giving thanks for the Thessalonians, constantly mentioning them in prayer. But it wasn't just the leadership who were devoted to prayer, it was the lay people as well, the regular attenders. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says that every day the, the believers there continued to meet together in the temple courts, broke bread in their homes, and ate together with gladness and sincere hearts. And they, and they prayed continually. Now, I think it's significant, though, that Paul puts the emphasis on devotion and nothing else. He puts the emphasis on devotion and nothing else. Notice what is not here. He doesn't talk about the importance of your length of prayer. Like, for example, if you do one hour of prayer, that's more effective than 15 minutes. 
Or if you choose to do a one sentence prayer more than a one pager, that is more spiritual and more important to God. Length of prayer is not important. The time of day is not important. You know, some might say, well, Jesus, I saw him in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35 after healing everyone in the city, getting up early in the morning when it was dark to go pray. So I think early in the morning when it's dark is the best time. When someone else might say, well, I think the best time is 3 p.m. Because that's when Cornelius received a vision from God when he was praying in Acts chapter 10 verse 3. Again, no emphasis on the length of prayer, no emphasis on the time of day, but devotion. Someone else might say, well, I think it's the posture in your prayer. You know, the really holy people get on their knees, another unholy people sit on their butts. Well, that's not what he emphasizes here. We see people in sitting and kneeling in the scriptures who are God-honoring in their prayer lives. Someone might say, I think it's the tone of voice. I think you need to cry out loud like the prophets did when they were screaming out to Baal. And the more emphatic you are with your voice and the tone, it invokes God into action. Another person might say, well, I think it's important to keep them private and speak in my mind where no one can hear me. Well, again, Paul doesn't address that because that's not the important part of it. The important part, again, is one's devotion. So again, he doesn't emphasize on the what, the when, the who, and the how, and the why, but on devotion. And remember why. We've discussed this early on in the first sermon. God seeks to partner with us. He wants to partner with us. Partnership means relationship. Prayer is about a relationship. I mean, what kind of marriage would you have or I have or what kind of relationship, uh, not only in marriage, but say between siblings or friends, if you never spoke to them, if you never made a daily effort to communicate, there would be nothing of any substance there. Again, this is the same as the Lord. It's the same as the Lord. Sometimes you may decide to pray in a different posture or a different length of time or whatever, and so be it. But the key, again, is devotion. Now, Paul does give two identifying markers that are important in the devotion. You notice here he says, keep alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, this idea of being alert, some of your translations will say, keep watch. Now, literally in the Greek, it means to stay awake. (laughs) He's saying, don't fall asleep when you're praying. Well, you might think, duh, Paul, like, well, of course, well, it's often harder to do than you think. Uh, I know the fastest thing to put me to sleep, if I want to sleep quickly, like some people like watch shows, listen to music, I just start praying and I can be asleep in about one minute. And so I think this idea of alertness is really important. Remember Jesus said to his disciples uh, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, you stay awake, stay, keep watch because, you know, something's going to happen tonight. He found them twice asleep in the garden. So this idea of being alert does carry the idea of being physically awake. And so this is really important. At the same time, to limit it to just being awake is wrong as well. Because um, alert can also mean to be attentive, to be vigilant. Kind of like the deer who stands outside my house all the time while eating my tree. And every time I open the door, his ears perk up when he turns and looks at me. He doesn't panic, but he's very aware of my presence when he's doing that. And that's what Paul's asking us to be, is aware and sensitive to the needs that come across our ears and eyes. That when we hear of situations and know of people that need prayer, that it's something that we will jump upon. He also tells us to be do it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 
this is the fifth time, actually, church, in Colossians that Paul has told the church to be thankful. The fifth time. Um, let me show you the other ones in terms of uh, areas of thankfulness. He said in um, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Be thankful for your salvation. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Be thankful for your personal growth in the Lord. In chapter 3, 15, he says, Be thankful for the fellowship with Christ and the body of Christ, community of believers. Uh, 3.17, the privilege to serve him. And then here in 4.2, the attitude of one's prayer life. So again, five times we have this idea of being thankful in the letter to Colossian, to Colossae. Now these are, these are really important, church. But what's, what struck out to me was this, that remember where Paul is when he's praying this. Back to the context. Where is Paul? He's in jail. How many of you in your prayer life would be thankful to the Lord while you're sitting in jail? <laughs> I'm guilty as charged. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. That'd be a most miserable nightmare situation I could be in. And what is Paul's attitude while in the, in the clank? He is thankful. Thankful for salvation, for personal growth of the people in his churches, the privilege to serve him, his, the attitude of, you know, or his fellowship with Christ in the body of Christ. What an incredible testimony, church, that his circumstances around prayer didn't affect whether he was thankful or not. If that doesn't speak to you, nothing will. <laughs> that is an incredible uh, observation to see when you understand the attitude of prayer in the midst of trial, in the midst of uh, nightmarish conditions. But thanksgiving is also a, a really important part, I think, because um, it prevents prayer from being a shopping cart full of a list of wants. That's how we often pray. We come to the Lord with a bunch of wants. Well, Thanksgiving takes you away from the shopping cart list and just puts it on praise. Now, if you've had a hard time so far uh, being alert, uh, keeping watch in my sermon so far, now is the time to wake up. Now is the time to be fully alert. If you're only going to give me five minutes of your time, now is the five minutes because if you remember nothing else, it's this next, these next section that's going to be absolutely imperative. Because here we see the heartbeat of Paul. We see the heartbeat of Paul in verses 3 and 4. Look at this. He says to the Colossians, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. This uh, understanding of these words in remembrance of his context of being in the jail is extremely important. And I've never seen this before to the same degree as I did in my studies this week, even though I've read these and taught these verses before. He's in jail as a victim. He's a victim. He's there unjustly. He did nothing wrong. All he did was preach Jesus and that put him in that circumstance. So here's a question for you, church. And if we were, if we're in person, <laughs> if we were in person at the RPAC, I'd make you yell out your answer out loud. But I'm going to guess your answer because it'd be my answer. 
If you were Paul, what would you be requesting the church in Colossae to pray for if you were in prison? What would you be asking him for? Release. Please, I'm here as a victim. All I did was preach Jesus. Get me out of here. I don't want to be around these stinking rats anymore at my feet. I don't want to be in this cold room. The food's terrible. Uh, my neighbor and I haven't, you know, showered for like a week. We smell r ridiculous. Like, everything. Get me out of here. I can't do any ministry in here. I am supposed to be out in the Gentile world proclaiming the gospel. This is limiting to me, Lord. These are the kind of things you'd think would be up on the prayer request. But listen to this. What's Paul's request? It's an open door church, but not to the jail cell. <laughs> It's an open door, but not to the jail cell, but to the ministry of the Word of God. If you look at the PowerPoint, look at the heartbeat of Paul. It's not a change in circumstances, but a change in spiritual opportunity. It's not a change in circumstances. It's a change in spiritual opportunity. Remember the, what a biblical house of prayer is. A biblical house of prayer shares in God's passion to see broken and excluded people come to know the saving grace of God and be restored to a better name than before. That's what we learned from the Ethiopian eunuch in the passage in Isaiah and, and all that. This is incredible. This is what Paul's heartbeat is. And this hit me over the head like a ton of bricks this week as I was studying for this. You see, the tri trials we face tend tend and can tempt us to stop praying out of frustration. What's the point, God? This sucks. Nothing's ever going to change, etc., etc. You know, or where are you? You've abandoned me, that type of attitude. Trials can often stop pr producing prayer in us. Or if, uh, or yeah, basically, and then that's like, that's kind of the attitude of our, of our prayer lives. And it also, trials also focus, help us, um, or set the table for us to lose focus on God's kingdom and just worry about our own. Right? It's always about me and my rights and my desire as my kingdom. And we kind of lose in the midst of trial the purpose of God in terms of what he's striving after, which is the restoration of the broken people. He wants relationship with humanity. It's important, I think, application-wise, church, right now. We're locked in. We're locked out. Where are our concerns? Our primary concerns right now. Are we, are we primarily concerned for new leadership? Are we primarily concerned for the economy? Is that our biggest frustration right now? Are we primarily concerned for the physical safety of ourselves? Or the physical safety of others? Is that the primary focus? Paul's heartbeat, regardless of the situation, is a concern for the lost and the preaching of Jesus. Proclaiming the mystery of Christ. Asking that his speech may be clear in the way he ought to speak. If you and I are going to share it with us in the same heartbeat of Paul... We need to have an evangelistic intentionality about life. We need to have an evangelistic intentionality about life where our prayer lives are devoted, devoted to open doors 
of God supernaturally creating opportunity for conversation, for relationships, and all sorts of things to share the mystery of Christ. We're also asking Him, we're devoted to saying, God, make my speech clear in the way I communicate your truth so people understand and want to know you. And notice, there's no excuses for personality types. He doesn't say, well, this is only true if you're extroverted, but introverted people, you don't have to do this. Or, it, oh, spiritual gifts. You know, the spiritual gift, that evangelism is a, sp- a spiritual gift. So those of you who have the spiritual gift and, and love this, have the Ravi Zacharias type of brain and heart, you do this. No, he's saying everyone, everyone think and pray and devote themselves to prayer in these ways. Somewhere amidst the concerns of life, we must be overtaken by the priority of the kingdom. Amidst the concerns of life, we must be overtaken by the priority of the kingdom. And this is where prayer fits in, why it's so important. Paul believes prayer is the vehicle by which God is invoked into action and supernaturally gets involved. In verse 3, God somehow opens doors for opportunity that normally would not be there. In verse 4, he gives clarity of speech that normally would not be there. How he does this is a, is a, is a mystery to me. I don't know how he does this up in the heavens in his sovereignty, how he wields all these things to come together. But he does. Paul, Paul's teaching that he does get involved. Paul, uh, Bob Utley, a pastor I, I listen to on occasion, who I think is a tremendous Bible teacher, says this. Prayer intensifies the spiritual atmosphere in the midst of conflict and releases spiritual powers that would not be released if we didn't pray. That's crazy, church. If we don't devote ourselves to prayer for open doors and for clarity of speech, that means that they will happen less than if we did, didn't. So that somehow God in His sovereignty says, you guys in your free will, you, uh, you have a huge part to play in moving me into action. This is a partnership. This is a relationship. We do things together to grow the kingdom This is super important. God has a role and we have a role. I can tell you from personal experience that this, that this, um, what Paul's teaching, God is faithful to and works in. Let me tell you a story. Um, true story. Back in the er- like earlier years when I had the gym, uh, that I would regularly go to work and, you know, I, you know, it was fun to do push-ups and sit-ups and all those things, but I always, I often would pray to the Lord for spiritual opportunity. So as I would drive down the hill from work and I'd get to the gym, I'd pray in the mornings as I was driving there, Lord, use me beyond just uh, physical training to have a conversation with someone spiritually in the gym. I don't know how and when and who, but just create open doors, open doors. When I pray that prayer faithfully, I would have multiple conversations, multiple. I could have two or three in a week. I could have uh, sometimes a couple in a day, but it was constant. And I remember one time, uh, I remember one time just, uh, just out of laziness or failing to keep alert, probably, I stopped that prayer on the way to the gym. And I remember driving to work one day going, man, it's been about like four to six weeks since I've had any significant conversation at work. 
and I realized I've stopped praying for these opportunities. So that morning, I got back on the horse, so to speak, and I started praying the whole week for opportunities. And that week, immediately, opportunity. I'll never forget that lesson, church. A faithful prayer, opportunities. I stopped, they decreased. I started again, they increased again. <laughs> God, holds, God holds us to his promises in these verses. A lot of you care right now about prayer and want to be evangelistic. And some might say, what's the first step? How do I become an evangelist? I say, it starts with devotion to prayer. It starts there. You, you, can, <laughs> you can study all you want. If you're not praying for opportunity, they're not going to come. Or they're going to come sporadically. And the Lord supernaturally can even help you to speak clearly. These are the key things to starting in evangelism. So here's a question. I'll ask you some questions, church. And the questions I have to ask myself. So I'll, I'll ask them as a, as a corporate group. But Paul says here, um, pray at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door for the word. Here's a question. Do you regularly pray for myself as the, as the main pastor at Genesis House? and the other leaders for God to open up doors to share the faith? Are you devoted in your prayer lives to asking that Andrew Dexter and the leadership of the church get, are given opportunities to share the faith? Do you pray regularly in your own lives that God would open up doors for you to be used? Do you pray that when he does open up doors and devote yourself to this, that he will somehow provide you with uh, the clarity and how to transition into spiritual realities and things and help proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly the way you ought to speak? Those of you love Genesis House because it's an application church. <laughs> Here's your application. These are the questions you have to ask. These are the questions I have to ask myself as well if you want to apply Paul's teaching. Now I did say there were two verbs that sh shaped this sermon. So let's look at the second. If the key focus in verses 2 and 4 was devotion to prayer as a means of having an evangelistic opportunities, the second focus in verses 5 to 6 is how we conduct ourselves in evang for evangelistic purposes. It's the focus in verse 5 is conduct. He, said, he says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of opportunities. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. My Bible says conduct, but some of your Bibles in the beginning might say walk. Walk with wisdom. Regardless of whether you have conduct or walk, they point to the exact same spiritual truth. Our evangelistic efforts, Paul says, are not just about what we say, but how we live. Our evangelistic efforts are not just about what we say, but how we live. The old saying, your life speaks so loudly I can't hear what you're saying. That's what Paul's driving at here. Now, I love this. He says, 
make the most out of every opportunity or the, make the most of the opportunity. This is not just a one-time thing. This is an, a, a daily thing. Some translations have make the most out of every opportunity. So again, it's this idea of daily choices, daily choices in how to walk and how to conduct ourselves. It's not a one-time event in terms of conduct or walk. It's an ongoing practice in life. And Paul's saying this, there's a way to walk and a way to live that's wise. And your life's mission on a daily basis is to make a frontal, purposeful, regular commitment to honoring the Lord with the way you live out your lives amongst the unbelieving world. And Paul says this is a tool of evangelism when you do this. Now this is obvious. Why? I mean, when one behaves consistently in, in line with what they proclaim, it gives credibility to the faith. And it actually can even result in an unbeliever more likely to listen to you because of the consistency and lack of hypocrisy. And so they're more likely to listen and even receive the message of Christ because there's a, there's a A equals B. <laughs> there's, there's a total linear relationship between walk and talk. It's interesting, you know, uh, Dan and I share stories and share uh, a lot of things about uh, ministry life and whatnot. He was sharing with me uh, about a month ago about a situation he has had in Calgary at, at, at Pine Ridge. A, uh, a man who he's met, not going to the church there, just a man he's met sort of in the neighborhood or in public, uh, has been talking to Dan regularly, not about spiritual things, just build, building a friendship and just talking about life. And um, one day, like Dan's been, you know, Dan's faithful to Colossians. He's just praying for opportunities. And one day the conversation transitioned into spiritual conversation. And uh, the man was quite antagonistic towards uh, Dan, you know, going that way. And uh, Dan said, well, what's going on here? Like, what's, what's, you know, why are you so sort of like, you know, frustrated with this whole thing? And the guy says, well, I've had lots of experience with like different people in leadership and churches and so on and so forth. And uh, it's been always negative. And he talked about the hypocrisy he's often seen about people who proclaim their faith and live in uh, defiance to what they actually proclaim. And so Dan took a huge, huge chance. But this is, again, all in relation to the Lord's work in his life. Dan said, he, he, what did Dan do? He actually appealed to him on his conduct. He said to the guy, he said, listen, I understand that people like me pose a threat and you see nothing like inconsistencies in people like myself as a follower of Jesus. He says, but can I appeal to you on something? He said, I would like you to consider listening to me on one condition. He says, have I done anything in my life, in my speech or my conduct to show you that I don't believe and line up with what I proclaim? And the guy said, no. He said, uh, have I done anything to offend you or hurt you or like malign you or anything like that or, and create any division between us? And he says, no. He says, have you seen any inconsistencies in my life? And the guy says, no. He goes, well, based on that, would you allow me to just give you a, take a shot at teaching you about the gospel of Christ? And, and that, those are my words, but basically about the gospel. And let me give you a, a defense for why Christianity to me is reasonable. You know what the guy said? He goes, I'd be willing to do that. An appeal to conduct by Dan, an open door for Dan, spiritually. And that friendship is still going. And I haven't got an update of how it's going, but it wouldn't surprise me in months from now, or even, you know, or later down the road, if this guy shows up at church 
and eventually um, gives his life to the Lord. An appeal to conduct, creating an opportunity for conversation. Something that shut the door for this guy in the past, because there was inconsistencies between conduct and talk. Walk and talk. So Paul finishes his section by returning once again to speech. He says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This idea of uh, speech again obviously fits into conduct. It's a part of conduct. But I don't think Paul has necessarily in mind the gospel here in terms of speech, only because he's just mentioned the gospel in verses 3 and 4. I think what he has in mind here is just general speech, the general way we converse with people in life. Ephesians chapter 4 in verses 25 to 32 expands on what this speech looks like. I'll just read it to you. Oh, where'd it go? Here it is. Ephesians 4, 25, 32. He says, stop telling lies. Stop telling lies. Don't sin by letting your anger control you. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everyone, everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians is always considered an expansion of Colossians. In fact, half of the words in Colossians are found in Ephesians. So it's basically a repeat, but on a bigger scale. And so Paul fleshes out some of these areas of speech in Ephesians chapter 4. This is an, these are examples of salty speech, <laughs> seasoned with salt, and, and examples of gracious speech. So in our, all our relationships, whether it be uh, between spouses, between siblings, the work environment, our neighbors, or in all circumstances, whether we're stressed, persecuted, made fun of, or whatever, we are to walk the walk and talk the talk in consistency. Now, I was going to write a bunch of lessons today, but I feel like the I, I've made them very clear in the, in the message today about what the truth of these verses are. Without a formal lesson, I'm going to give you a challenge. A challenge. A challenge that is going to put the, make the rubber hit the road, so to speak. Again, our church is big on application. That's what we strive for. So here's your application. Here's what we as a church are going to strive for. You see, as a church, as a general statement, I'm not talking about individuals here and there and opportunities here and there that haven't been taken. But I think Genesis House, as a general statement, has probably failed to encapsulate Paul's heartbeat. I think we have missed the mark fully in embracing the rhythm of Paul's heart. Praying for the leadership, for example, to have open doors. Have we faithfully done that? Prayer for you to be partnering with God and be used by Him, like a devoted to, like devoted to the idea of letting Him use you to, to spread the message of Jesus Christ 
and to ask Him for in devotion for clarity of speech. Again, I'm not saying that we don't have individuals on, on who do this and, and, and sporadically that we do this, but I'm talking a devotion to this area of, of life. A devotion, church. What you're known for. What I'm known for. So here's a challenge. For 40 days, starting December 1st through to January 8th, I want you to join me in a challenge. You are going to, and I am going to, be devoted to prayer for 40 days, asking the Lord to open doors for the gospel message so that you and I can proclaim the mystery of Christ. We are going to ask Him in devotion that we will clearly speak the message the way we ought to speak it, and that the Holy Spirit would empower us to do so. You're going to pray for the leadership of this church that they do that, that God puts a huge burden on myself and, you know, as an example, and, and the women and men in our church who are leading right now to have opportunity. Now, the best place to start is repentance. <laughs> the best place to start is repentance in two areas. Number one, are there any areas in our conduct in verse 5 where we have not been wise and we're not walking in the Lord's ways, which may be a hindrance in our evangelism? Number two, complacency. The fact that we haven't captured the heartbeat of Paul who in jail didn't pray for his, wasn't asking for release from jail, but a, an open spiritual opportunity. I'm convicted, church. I mean, I'm your leader. And I, I in the midst of trials, uh, lose focus on that one thing. But that's, again, for that's the recapturing of Paul's rhythm of his heart. And, and then after that, recommit. Say, Lord, I am willing to partner with you. I'll partner with you. We're eight years in our eighth year of church planting ministry, and our growth has primarily come from transference of sheep from one pen to another. I'm grateful for the people that have joined our church. I'm grateful for the growth we've had. We we are we are in many we have a lot of things uh, going well for us, and and we're we're, we're doing well in many ways. But the one area, church, we haven't encapsulated in, in God's sort of heartbeat is a salvation for the lost. This heartbeat to, to want new people that come into our church that don't know Christ. Or into our homes. Into our homes, at least, and into our lives to, to minister to people. So I'm just going to pray in closing. And I'm going to pray for myself, but I'm going to try to encapsulate you in it as well in terms of how this looks going forward for the next 40 days. Lord, we uh, come to you with broken and contrite spirits. Not just in the last number of years, but even especially these last 10 months or we've probably failed to miss the heartbeat of what your heartbeat is. 
We're focused on the economy. We're focused on the health and safety of people and all these things. Lord, they're secondary to the spiritual desire you have for children to come to know you. But your people are the ones that have to bridge that gap. You supernaturally get involved when we pray and we devote ourselves to this. But you're waiting for us to act, to partner with you. And we haven't, on a regular basis, in a devoted type of way, made this the heartbeat of our lives. We're focused on our own personal kingdoms and focused on our own personal lives. And we fail to, in many ways, to, to hit the mark. We become complacent and, and um, yeah, just focused on ourselves. But Lord, we want your kingdom to grow. And we pray, we've prayed even in our prayer meetings, like in church and even on Zoom in the past, that this time would be a chance of revival. But I think sometimes we just pray that prayer and then we leave it at the door. And we don't do anything with it. But you're asking all of us to be committed to this. We have around 30 adults, 30 adults, like grown-ups that could, and a few, you know, young adults now, like teenagers that could commit to this. So probably only 35 people that could make this the heartbeat of their life. I know, Lord, that you would transform our church by our prayer lives and that you would open doors for us because that's your promise. As if you wouldn't act if we were faithful to you in this way. So we recommit ourselves to you. We recommit ourselves to you. And we ask you, God, to uh, use us in Christ's name.